1794. July, August, September. Three months in which Maximilian Robespierre appears to sleepwalk his way to the guillotine. He certainly thought thing, there was a crisis coming, but he also does something to provoke it. The British and the Austrians are going backwards fast in the Low Countries. There was a lot of marching backwards, probably rightly so, uh, in the face of overwhelming numbers. And in the Mediterranean, British forces finally wrest a useful prize from the grasp of the French. It was critical in terms of the British being able to project influence and connect with their allies in southern Europe. I'm Alexander Stevenson, and this is episode 11 of the Napoleonic Quarterly, covering three months in which the terror finally consumes its own. The Napoleonic Quarterly takes the epic conflicts of the 1792 to 1815 period three months at a time. And for the three months covered by this episode, I'm joined by Marisa Linton, Gary Wills and Rachel Blackman. But first, here's the headline developments to bring you up to speed. And the biggest development in this three months is the fall of Robespierre, the man most closely linked with sending so many to the guillotine is sent there himself in the coup, if that's the right word, known as Thermidor, a newly organised, reorganised Committee of Public Safety then brings in reformed radicals, but it's really dominated by moderate revolutionaries, if that isn't a contradiction in terms. And Napoleon Bonaparte is arrested in August and spends the rest of... Uh, well, he spends a little bit of time behind bars, doesn't he? But he gets out um, after a couple of weeks or so and back he goes to the army. On the front line, the Duke of York is on the back foot against the French in the Netherlands, falling back in the face of what seemed to be irresistibly large numbers of French soldiers. We'll talk more about that later. While the Austrians are mentally checking out and indeed, as it turns out, abandoning the Netherlands for good. And that opens up the northern wing of the Prussian forces and the Austrians as well, defending the Rhineland. They're pushed back to the river. It just seems to be one-way traffic in this three months. There's a series of defeats for the Allies that follow at the hands of Moreau. Uh, on the Rhine, down south, the Spanish, the Spanish also get a hiding in August, while on the Riviera, the French are pressing hard towards Genoa against the Piedmontese. But there's some good news for the Allies as the British take Corsica, wrapping that up, and that gives the Navy a useful base for operations uh, along the, uh, the, the littoral there. Away from France and its expanding borders, the stakes in Eastern Europe are raised after Prussia's decision to work with Russia against the Polish uprising. And in this quarter, we see the fighting getting underway. And there is some initial success for the insurrection, taking towns here and there, which forces the Prussians to withdraw some of their troops from the continuing siege of Warsaw. And in the Caribbean, if it wasn't obvious before, it certainly is in this three months, that Toussaint Louverture's Switching of sides from the Spanish to the French is going to mean it's not looking good for that continued Spanish presence uh, on the island um, uh, which contains Saint-Domingue and, of course, Santo Domingo. Well, so much to talk about and, as usual, uh, delighted to be joined by Professor Emeritus Charles Esdale of the University of Liverpool and Professor Alexander Mika Baridze of uh, Louisiana State University. I always want to add brackets, Shreveport, close brackets, because that's where, that's where it is, isn't it, Alex? Yes, indeed. And it's actually it's a very sensitive issue, so to speak, because uh, universities are all, you know, in, the, in this kind of competition. <laughs> so in <laughs> a smaller campus like mine is a very... Uh, uh, <laughs> Very sensitive about not being confused with a much bigger <laughs> brethren in down in Baton Rouge. Oh gosh! <laughs> well, at least Charles, we all know where Liverpool is. Yep. 
Yep. And it's not here. <laughs> it's not, well, that's the great advantage of that's the great advantage of the emeritus in your name, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, well, let's move swiftly on to less controversial topics and, and namely Thermidor. Um well <laughs> so Thermidor this is a big moment in our story. Robespierre taken off the board. I'm getting really worked up about it. I've been looking forward to talking to you about it. Charles, what do you make of Thermidor? This is a dramatic moment in the story. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially Robespierre and his, and his colleagues are, are, are victims of their own success. They had come in as, as a regime which is dedicated to saving the revolution, which is dedicated to dealing with the great crisis of 1793, whether that's exaggerated or not. Um, and they proceed to deal with it. The foreign armies um, are, are brought to a halt. Um, the Vendée is, is suppressed. Um, you know, Toulon, of course, is, 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 is dealt with. The, the revolting Lyon is dealt with. And all of a sudden, people are saying, well, we don't really need these radical policies anymore because they were brought in as, as emergency measures. And on top of that, Robespierre and his friends um, had, had been so determined to eradicate any, any political threat to the revolution that they they'd made themselves absolutely feared by all and sundry. And so when the moment comes uh, when it looks as if they've, they've done their job, that, frankly, they get pounced on and dealt with. And that's the end of that. Well, we'll cover off um, a lot more on the, you know, more detail on the, these extraordinary events um, shortly. But just before then, uh, Alex, I wondered if you might like to comment on some of the other big developments outside Europe. Um, I mean, particularly Poland, I suppose, where you have this big uprising going on. And this is another example of Prussian and Russian eyes looking for, you know, l- looking greedily. Uh, somewhere, but that somewhere is not France. Absolutely, and uh, I think here the driving force is is still uh, the Russian Empress Catherine um, the Great, as she will be soon enough uh, known. And you, you're absolutely uh, correct in pointing out that you see here the really the uh, uh, appreciation by the Eastern powers of the situation uh, created by the French Revolution. Uh, the turmoil, the, the violence, the war f- that has been raging for the past year and a half has consumed the attention, the resources, the manpower of many European uh, powers. And it creates this opportunity to complete uh, the uh, partitioning of what used to be one of the uh, largest and uh, prosperous states in, in Europe, uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And Kostiuszko's revolt was really the last um, attempt uh, by the Poles to prevent the partition. But as we'll see by the fall of 1794, uh, even this attempt will falter. Well, there is lots going on all over the place, clearly. But certainly in these early episodes of this podcast, it's the drama of the French Revolution, which is one of our biggest stories keeping us gripped. And and this is one of its biggest moments. So let's go over to Professor Marisa Linton of the University of Kingston to talk us through the downfall of one of the most notorious figures of the period. He broke his silence on the uh, 26th of July to go to the convention and to make a very long speech, a very passionate and emotional speech, uh, which uh, talked about how he'd given everything to the revolution and how he thought it was all on the verge of toppling on him. He said afterwards it was his um, uh, testament de, de mort, you know, his, his, like his, his last statement before his death. So he certainly thought thing, there was a crisis coming, but he also does something to provoke it by going to the convention and making a speech about how he's been this very moral person and other people are, are sort of um, against him. He's also making other people afraid and he will not name the people whom he fears within the convention. And so it was quite possible for people to sit there and think, well, does he mean me or does he mean you? I mean, who's he talking about? He says the idea is is being floated by him that they need another purge. Right. And it's enough to make everybody feel very uncomfortable in their seats. 
terrified. It's enough to make them absolutely terrified, yes. And enough to make them act. But when we're talking about they, is this the convention in very general terms? Is it possible to break it down and talk about factions or, 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 or groupings? Most of the people who are active in that conspiracy to bring Robespierre down are Montagnard, not all of them, but most of them are his own people, which just goes to your own politics. The people you really have to look out for are not your enemies in front of you, or the ones wearing enemy uniforms, they're the people standing right behind you. And this is very much what happens. I mean, but they weren't threatening Robespierre themselves in terms of his position. They were. Yeah, he did. He was frightened of them. He was the most frightened man in the convention and they were frightened of him. I mean, there have been a huge breakdown in, in trust. If you think of what had been happening over the last few months, that's the arrest of the Girondins and their trial and execution in the autumn of the previous year, and then followed by the arrest of uh, the Danton and his group. There were many deputies by this point who were either in prison or had already been executed. It's it's terrifying. Something, well, 86 deputies do not die a natural death during the period of the convention. They either are fall under the guillotine or they commit suicide so as to avoid the traumatic last appearance. Yes. So, yeah, they, they, um, it, it's, it's, they have a lot to be afraid of. People have a great deal to be afraid of. Robespierre is afraid too. So you've said that Robespierre sort of brought it upon himself by just making everyone utterly terrified. Is there anything he could have done differently? I mean, I don't want to get into counterfactuals, but for the purposes of trying to explain why things came to this pretty pass, is there anything that he could have done differently to to have kept things going? Well, he could have acted quicker to arrest the people who wanted to arrest him. Right. I mean, it's not very edifying, but that's what you do in a crisis. You, You have to be the first to strike. It was that kind of situation. So, yes, if he brought down the people who had uh, he felt were against him, some of whom were on the Committee of Public Safety, like Vieux-Varenne and Collot de Bois, then he probably, yeah, would have been OK. But they certainly wouldn't. It was, it was, it was an either-or situation. But he doesn't do any of that. This is why I think he's having some sort of a, a breakdown. This is what I think it happened. He makes this huge speech in his own name, not in the name of one of the committees, but but just a sort of very personal speech about how he personally feels aggressed. Really, really difficult speech. Doesn't say who exactly is aggressing him. And then he goes to the Jacobin Club and gives it all over again to the people whom he thinks will understand him and appreciate him. And then he goes home to bed. While he's in his bed, sleeping or not sleeping, the people who feel he's going to arrest him are rushing around, doing deals with one another and trying to organise some sort of counter-coup. And the next morning, when Saint-Just, who decides very late in the day, in fact, to back Robespierre, his friend, stands up in the convention to make a speech, Saint-Just is shouted down by a group of deputies who have got together, most of them Montagnard, some on the Committee of Public Safety, some on the Committee of General Security, but also some of the deputies on mission and who've been on mission, who'd um, acted badly on mission. So Talia is, is, is the first to do that, to kind of break ranks. And once he speaks and the others speak, they all kind of pour onto Robespierre. And there's this huge frenzied situation. Wow shouting yeah and he goes within sort of two hours uh, of this outbreak from being kind of a leader of the revolution to being a suspected traitor under arrest and and perhaps you might just talk through the um the final hours as it were of of robespierre's political life and then i suppose not too far off from being the end of his life yeah. Well, it happens very quickly. Once once his arrest is decreed and that of uh, several other deputies who stood with him, so his younger brother who insisted on being arrested with him, uh, Couton, Saint-Just and also Le Bas, and these deputies are arrested. They're sent to prisons, but the prisons refuse to receive them because either the jailers are too frightened or they're, they're too much in support of Robespierre to, to want to do that. And these deputies are then at liberty they, they congregate on the town hall, the Hotel de Ville, and they try and organise a sort of last stand with members of the commune who side with them. But the moment that they've kind of, they've accepted not to be imprisoned, they're actually outlawed. That is how the revolutionary law worked. So from that point onwards, they only have to be arrested 
and their identity established for them to be executed. That's what happens. So a lot of the support that they have tried to rally in the commune melts away during the night because a lot of people are very frightened that they will be killed too. And then in the middle of the night, forces of the convention led by Baha, whom you will <laughs> refer to much, uh, come into the, the town hall and they arrest Robespierre. Lebar kills himself. Robespierre's brother tries to kill himself. And they're held for a few hours in the conciergerie prison. And then they're all packed off to the guillotine, along with many members of the commune who had supported Robespierre. Over three days, 108 men are executed or commit suicide. It's brutal. It's grisly. More than grisly, yeah. And and to finish, there's a, a, a quick reorganisation of government that follows. Yes, there's a very quick reorganisation of government. The survivors of Thermidor, and they really are, you know, the lucky survivors who sort of who, who sort of picked picked the right side at the last moment, they start to reinvent themselves within a few days as people who have been opposed to terror. And there's a lot of people washing their hands of what they have previously done. So you get a man like uh, Carno, who's who's now seen as sort of, you know, the great organizer of victory and the man who who had nothing to do with any any nasty business of arresting people. Uh, he's re he reinvents himself successfully. There are a lot of people like that who are now seen as kind of the great heroes and they have roads named after them and schools and all sorts of stuff. And uh, yes. Robespierre is on the right side of history. Yeah, exactly. Robespierre Sanjus to left to take all the, the blame, the posthumous blame. And the reality is, all those deputies have been involved. They'd all been involved at the time in terror. That was that was how it was. Well, Marisa Linton there, and I'm really interested in her suggestion that the winners get to write history, that we don't get to hear from Robespierre about, you know, because he's dead, whereas it's people like Thibodeau who are the, who are the people who are telling the story. Charles, do you think that if we, I don't know, because of course after Bonaparte's end, we're getting ahead of ourselves there, sorry to spoil the ending of this, <laughs> this podcast, but, but, but of course he spends a long time telling his story, but that's not something that we ever get to hear from Robespierre. No, I mean, um, Robespierre is, 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 is silenced. What would he have said? Um, I'm sure that he would have said that he honestly and conscientiously tried to serve the interests of the revolution, um, that he left the revolution stronger when he was overthrown than, than, than before the Committee of Public Safety came to power. He would have seen himself as a patriot above all. Um, I'm sure that he could have, have mounted a, a, a very credible defence of his conduct. And, and in many ways, well, I mean, the, 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 the sight of so much judicial murder hardly fills me with joy. But Robespierre succeeded in stabilising the situation. I mean, it wasn't just him, of course. I mean, it's, it's too much shorthand to talk in terms of Robespierre because, you know, he wasn't a, a dictator. He, he wasn't the prime minister. He was just one in, in, in a group of 12 or, and so forth. So, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that Robespierre would have had a lot to say for himself and that it would have been possible to, to respect that. I don't, I don't really th see what... Robespierre could have said, um, in addition to his speeches, which were quite eloquent, and the writings, really, uh, that would give us better sense of where he stood. I mean, he was very forthright and quite open about what his intentions were in his speeches, in his writings, and we have those. But there is one question which is unanswered, which is why he didn't act, why he just went home to bed that night. Why, why was he not moving at pace to save himself when it had become such an either-or situation? That's a great question. I don't think we have a good answer. Uh, partly it is his sheer exhaustion. We, we know that, uh, and I, I, can, I can personally relate to that, <laughs> even though I'm not working in, uh, under anywhere remotely close to his conditions, uh, but uh, the, the sense of tiredness, I think, could get the best of you. And we know that... Um, at the beginning of the summer, 
Robespierre uh, Spear had this long hiatus because he was physically exhausted. He just didn't feel well. And maybe, you know, that physical part, uh, uh, tiredness maybe, you know, I, I, th- I think had a direct impact on, on his both mental sharpness as well. But there is no denying that there is also internal, right, the internal uh, undercurrents within the Committee of Public Safety. We oftentimes think about them as the homogenous group, but there are uh, interesting rifts among the members, which I think hamper uh, Robespierre's ability or, or the sea supporters' ability to, um, to really pose a, a united front. And there is certain, I think Charles mentioned this, certain kind of arrogance because of the success they had. They've come a long way and they've dealt with the likes of Danton. I mean, much greater, uh, pre- a much greater threat than anyone like Ferron uh, or, or uh, others who would emerge as the leaders of what we'll call now Thermidorian reaction. They, uh, I think they underestimated, in that sense, their, their desire to survive and, and, and fight back. Ah, yes, the Thermidorian reaction. And we'll come again to the, uh, the options faced by those survivors at the end of this episode. But for now, let's move on to the military situation. And in the last episode, we heard how the French armies had managed to clear the British and Austrians out of Belgium, out of what had been the Austrian Netherlands. Well, now here's the latest on this three months from military historian Gary Wills, a new voice on the podcast. And it's great to have Gary along for the ride. The thing that that gets uh, forgotten is uh, the British liked having the Austrians in the Spanish Netherlands, uh, as they used to be, because they uh, didn't want to do anything with it. So they can't be too surprised uh, if the going gets a bit tough that all of a sudden the Austrians decide that uh, it's not that important after all. The thing that's really changed is that in that first and second quarter of the year, Carnot's uh, masses of new recruits arrived. So by the beginning of the third quarter, uh, you have the two armies side by side. You have the Army of the North with 77,000 men and 230 guns, and the Army of the Saint-Brumers under Jordan with 92,000 men and and 300 guns. And they're advancing from a a line from Orleans, Brussels, Numur, and against them, the English have only got 36,000 uh, men. The Dutch, I think, uh, based on Gert's numbers, are 12,000 strong, and uh, Coburg's got 70,000. So I don't think it takes too much um, understanding to realise where, where this is going to go. I think the other thing is that um, the French armies are different to the way they were in 1793. Obviously, we had the first uh, set of amalgams, but uh, most of the new recruits arrived by the end of the the first quarter. And in that second quarter, uh, which is the prelude to this, the French didn't sit around. They spent the time testing those guys, training them up. Um, It only takes six months to train them. Uh, and and to give them the daily raiding that gives them the battle experience. So I think the uh, there are lots of changes that have happened that don't get enough airtime. You know, Lynn's work showed that uh, by this time, by 1794, all of a sudden the, the French uh, armies are able to form square efficiently. Uh, the Duke of York's victories in 1793 were often involved cavalry charges into the flank of infantry that couldn't form square. And so, Kel Surprise, they all run away. And I think that, that really explains why there's only one way, and it's backwards uh, against those numbers. Okay, and then in August 1794, we see the reduction of the Allied fortresses in Flanders. And, and that was an important measure for the French to take before they felt confident enough to press on into threatening the Netherlands. Why, why, was, why were these fortresses so important? Yeah, I think there's an argument that says this is the last of the big fortress wars where the armies uh, determined what they did based on what the fortresses uh, were there, which is the way 
the warfare had been fought for a hundred years. So, uh, I mean, yes, the Duke of Orange decided to abandon uh, his fortresses uh, south of the Scheldt, and uh, that left Valenciennes and uh, Le Quesnoy uh, and Conde uh, out to be sieged by uh, Jordan. But all the Duke of York and the, and the Prince of Orange did was fall back to another set of fortresses from Bergen up Zoom through Breda, uh, Bois-le-Duc and Eindhoven. And so it, it really was the capture of the two forces, that, uh, the, the fortresses at Valenciennes by Jordan, uh, that kicked off the, uh, the campaign proper in this quarter. And so those fortresses did fall, um, which then enabled or allowed the French to advance into the Netherlands in September. And that's that's very significant, I think, because it's the, the first time that they've really made progress beyond what was the Austrian Netherlands into modern-day Holland. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, a big step forward, but they've got a lot of men, and again, they're... they're they're needing to feed them and so there is only one way they can go and that's uh, forwards. So what was the dynamic then in terms of the the military campaigning? Was this just the French advancing through force of numbers? Were there many interesting battles or conflicts or was it just that standard allied approach we seem to see of them seeing that rabble in the distance and just methodically and carefully falling back? What happened was that uh, Moreau from Pichu's uh, Army of the North stormed up the coast and uh, so he uh, uh, advanced through, through Ostend and uh, very significantly took uh, Neu- Neuport uh, which is remembered mainly for the slaughter of the uh, 240 emigres that were captured at the time and uh, and then he went on to towards Antwerp but, but in doing that, he's cutting off the, the British from their supply lines and outflanking uh, their position, in, in effect. Prince of Orange has fallen back to this line of fortresses. What happens next? There was a lot of marching backwards uh, right. in the face of, and, and probably rightly so, uh, in the face of overwhelming numbers of uh, French uh, forces. So it was very difficult for them to uh, to hold any line, particularly as they're def- defining their lines by fortresses. After Neuport was had fallen, they really had to fall back to the to the line we've talked about. And Boxdell itself fell on the fourteenth of September. And then, what was the situation looking like by the end of this quarter? So by the end of September. It's hard to imagine yourself looking back at this as to what the Duke of York thought he was doing. It appears that there was a hope that because it was September, they might be out to winter uh, on the line of the River R, uh, anchored on, uh, on Bois-le-Duc. At uh, Boxell uh, on the 14th, uh, Pichu arrived and rather disabused them of, of any such thoughts. He threw 55,000 men at the river line of the Dommel, which is about seven miles from the R where uh, the Duke of York had his army. And this line was de- defended by 9,000 Hanoverians and Hessians. In Boxer itself, there was 1,100 guys. And this mass of French infantry just stormed through, surrounded it, captured two battalions or about 600 men. Wellington's first battle on the 15th was a quite odd situation where Abercrombie was sent at midnight to try and take Boxtel back. So Peachgrew is sitting in Boxtel with 55,000 men around him and Abercrombie sets off with 5,000 men. And of course he hesitates a bit. In fact, according to Morris, he hesitated quite a lot. And in the end, you know, despite asking the Duke of York who told him to get on with it, uh, he decided to to fall back and uh, but the the funny thing is by the time Abercrombie got back with his 5,000 men to the to the river R to the camp at Burlicum the Duke of York had already left the rest of the army was already on its way back to the to the Meurs. I, I suspect this is um, a fracture line between two different ways of making war. The massive numbers of men that the French were able to bring to bear changed the nature of campaigning. So an air of inevitability or irresistible 
uh, French momentum in Flanders and the Low Countries during this three months. But we should also just add in a little word about what was going on on the Rhine during these three months. It was a bit quieter here where it feels a bit like both sides had rather ground to a halt. But we did see an offensive in in the Vosges, which forced the Allies back to Mannheim and Worms. Yeah, and uh, I mean, that was both the Army of the Rhine and the Army of the Moselle pushed uh, through Kaiserslautern onto Mannheim, as you say, and Mainz. And yeah, it, it, that happened in, in July. I, it was fairly quiet. There was a counterattack, um, but the Allies soon left Kaiserslautern again. The significance of it, of course, is that it it doesn't make the situation of the Austrians any easier uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, if they need any more encouragement to fall back to the Rhine, then that was always there. And, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, once the fortresses at Valenciennes had fallen, uh, Jordan's uh, army uh, just pressed the Austrians back and back and back until they eventually crossed the Rhine. So just to sum up then, because this is the great theme, I suppose, the Austrians recognising that with it being all up for the Austrian Netherlands, that actually they're just going to have to let go of what was always a slightly odd province, as it were, for for the Habsburgs. Yeah, there was still evidence that there was some willingness on the part of people like Claire Faye to try and collaborate with, with the Duke of York and uh, launch the odd offensive. But it had become pretty clear uh, that uh, it was it, it was a, a waste of time, waste of money and treasure, as they say. But uh, so it's no surprise. And as I said a few minutes ago, the, the very reason the British wanted the Austrians in the Netherlands is the very reason they left, because it wasn't important to them. That's Gary David Wills. That's, that's his, how his name's published, anyway. And let's let's try and work out what's going on here with with the Austrians and the British. And and the the Austrians look, seems like they've more or less given up. Um, and I'm just trying to be interested to hear your thoughts, Charles and Alex, on their motivations for this. Why, how they're just kind of just walking away, really. I mean, I know they'd had a difficult time in in the. Austrian Netherlands, and that some of their reforms hadn't gone down particularly well. This wasn't Francis's, but but his predecessors. So the sort of the, the ties that bind were, were not there. But it looks like they've just made the strategic decision to 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 scrap it, to give it up as a bad job. Well, they they'd always wanted to get rid of the um, the Austrian Netherlands, or at least not always, but for for quite a time they'd wanted to. Um, they essentially wanted to engage in what was called the Bavarian exchange, whereby um, the, whereby the Austrian Netherlands would have been given up to uh, Bavaria um, in exchange for, for Bavaria's territory you know, around Munich. Um, and that would have made a lot more sense because, of course, um, Bavaria is contiguous to, to Austria. Um, and and the, the Austrian Netherlands were simply not very important uh, to 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 Austria, um, they they were an appendage, um, and one which was difficult to defend and difficult to manage. So you you can see why their their hearts wouldn't have been in defending it. That's a really interesting point because this area is clearly of great importance to the British, and and I suppose Alex, that's why the British are there. But it looks like the Austrians are giving up. They're sort of left without left without options. The Austrians are uh, really in a in a very difficult position because we you know you alluded we alluded to this repeatedly throughout their uh, our podcast uh, that situation in Western Europe in France needs to be always considered in the context of situation in Eastern Europe and it, this moment is particularly interesting because as you've noted the French military uh, resurgence uh, the the sheer numbers that the French are committing are giving the French an advantage. And it, it, Austrians need support because 
Uh, now that the Austrians have entered the second year of this war, they are indeed struggling economically, financially, uh, to contain uh, the, the French threat. And one of the ways they tried to shore up their defense, uh, their positions in, in, in Belgium was by actually asking Russians for help. But in, uh, in the spring of 1794, it becomes clear, for example, to uh, Austrians, and you can, we can see that through the correspondence of their foreign minister, Tugut, uh, who uh, it becomes clear that the Russian commitments or the Russian promises would not materialize because of the rising in Poland that the Russians would most probably send no troops to the West for the time being because they have to use those forces to Poles. And what makes things even worse for Austrians is this realization. And we see that in an interesting letter that Tugut uh, uh, writes uh, in, in late June of 1794, uh, where he uh, t- uh, says that uh, what cannot one in this is a quote, quote one cannot deceive oneself that the probable result of the events in Poland will be a new partition as inconvenient for us as that would be it is no less true that given this general situation the Austrian emperor cannot oppose it and I think that the that is one of the reflections of Austrian weakness in summer of 94 that they are really caught between the rock and the hard place they cannot contain French offensive for the factors that we've discussed. They need help, but the help will not come because of the rising in Poland. And remarkably, Austrians can't do much to uh, get even a, uh, a hand or involvement in, in, in the events in Poland. And so here you see Austria really torn between the two fronts, and uh, they, in many respects, fail on both. I thought we might shift our focus now to the Mediterranean, where the British are trying to be helpful and use their naval capability to support and influence what's going on on land. And so to talk through that, we've got uh, Rachel Blackman uh, Rogers once again to tell the story of the British capture of Corsica. But by way of introduction, it would be great to get a bit from you both about the Western Mediterranean as a theatre. So um, let's just uh, spend a little bit of time on that now. And perhaps I might ask, uh, ask you, Alex, who, who were the main power players here? I mean, it seems to me the list to tick off, you've got France, Spain, all that sort of mishmash of Italian states. You've got the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, I, you know, with its capital in Naples, and, and then, of course, the British as well. Yes, Western Mediterranean is uh, is actually a very, is a hotbed of uh, operations and activities throughout this period. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I probably should mention that uh, there is a fascinating new study uh, on on this theater by a good friend of mine, Joshua Meeks, who just recently published uh, a book, France, Britain, and the struggle for Western Mediterranean, right um, at, at, at this period. And uh, what we see here is the convergence of interests of, of several European powers. Um, these are the traditional kind of powers of, of France, of Spain, of Britain. And we will see how their operations will shape really the history of Mediterranean. But at the same time, we need to mention that there are, uh, um, you know, the rising threat uh, of the, bar- the so-called Barbary states, right, the states in North uh, Africa, who will indeed take advantage of the uh, political and military situation in Europe to conduct more assertive campaigns on on the seas, and that soon enough uh, will brought uh, will bring in uh, the rising naval power of the United States. We uh, think it might be uh, proper to mention that the f- one you know the first projection of power the United States attempted, right, from the shores of North America, was indeed to the North uh, African uh, shores to contain the uh, piracy of the uh, of these uh, Barbary states. Well, Charles, can I ask you, uh, again, we're in sort of um, preview mode, but, but w- what was the state of the fighting on the Riviera so far at this stage? And, and it's the, the, the French uh, enemy here or adversary it's 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 the kingdom of Piedmont. 
Yeah, I mean, France is fighting two wars at once, of course, um, around the, the western part of the Mediterranean, because she's, she's fighting against Piedmont, um, against which she, she scores notable successes in, in the summer of uh, 1794. Um, she takes a fortress at Cuneo, for example. And of course, she's also, she's also fighting on the Pyrenees, or in the Pyrenees rather, against Spain. Um, in April 1794, she'd won the Battle at Boulou, um, which had driven the, the Spanish army out of Roussillon, driven it across the Pyrenees. But then, frankly, fighting on that front comes to a standstill. They, they, the, the French don't advance very far. Um, they, they just occupy a strip of territory just inside the frontier. Um, the main action is actually further west on in the area of um, the Basque provinces and Navarre, where the French do score some successes. So anyway, there's um, ongoing fighting um, taking place. But um, frankly, progress... Well, yes, I mean, pro progress is substantial, but it's not as substantial as you see in Belgium. Um, and that, and that's in part because, of course, um, you know, Belgium doesn't have the Pyrenees or, for that matter, the Alps. You know, obvious, obviously, terrain favours the defence. And the same goes on the Riviera, where this sort of stretch of land, this strip between Marseille, Nice and, I suppose, Genoa, which is what's being tussled over there, and and but 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 the question of what the British can can do to influence that, and I suppose why don't we hear from Rachel Blackman now, uh, Rachel Blackman Rogers now, who, who's able to explain why Corsica was of such interest to the British, why they went to these efforts after all. Uh, well, for the British, it was part of the Mediterranean fleet's mission to secure Corsica. They needed a permanent Mediterranean base. Uh, from which to operate that would provide uh, deep water bays that they could anchor their fleet in and shelter from the from any gales and, and bad weather, which were quite frequent, especially in the um, winter season. Um, and it also um, was uh, politically, the uh, English had been supporting uh, Pasquale Paoli, who essentially wanted... Corsican sovereignty and independence. And so they felt that they could help each other. It was critical in terms of the British being able to project influence and connect with their allies in southern Europe that they have a base. And there really wasn't another available. Menorca was Spanish and the Spanish were our allies. And it's not very nice to take your allies' territories uh, Malta was also out of the question. And from Corsica, they could also secure the navigation of the Mediterranean. And that's what Fr France wanted as well. They wanted to secure navigation of the Mediterranean for themselves, provide southern France with some food security, um, and basically project their political influence into southern Europe and preferably rid the Mediterranean of the British. And so a, a clear impetus then for the for the attempt to capture it. Who were the main actors? Um, uh, I guess I'm thinking of Hood and, and uh, a, a, a captain called Nelson at the time. Uh, well, Nelson uh, was part of it and he was certainly useful. Um, at this period, he probably wasn't pivotal to the campaign, whereas Hood, Hood was and he drove the campaign. He was... He and Gilbert Elliot, who then became Viceroy of Corsica, were the only ones who really appreciated the political impetus and the political situation. Um, what they were very aware of was the impact of the revolution on France's land war. So it was an acceleration. They didn't stop for winter. They, there was an aggression that hadn't been there before. And as that French impetus built up along the Riviera coast, so um, Hood realised that it was vital they took Corsica as quickly as possible. In terms of the French, um, you know, they had Bonaparte, and obviously he was Corsican and, and had been born in Ajaccio, and eventually they would bring him in and his influence would eventually uh, create problems, but, uh, and they, they didn't really have Paoli on their side for a while. 
So in May you have the the siege and the fall of Bastia. So this is this is a significant moment, I think, for the for the British. Uh, yes, uh, they'd already taken San Fiorenzo, which gave them a bay for their fleet off the coast of Corsica, and the. The problem with taking Bastia was that it exposed the problems of British strategy, which was a lack of maritime strategy. Um, The army and the navy failed to work together um, uh, because the army seemed to be unaware of what their role actually was or should be. They were too small and too dispersed to do more than support the navy in amphibious assaults, and that was their role. Um, and General Dundas really struggled with that whole notion and struggled to work with Hood. He also didn't really appreciate the necessity to take Corsica as quickly as possible. Um, and he, the clash between him and Hood delayed the campaign for about a month and that allowed the <laughs> French to um, push their land forces into Piedmont and uh, along the Riviera. So... Hood was constantly aware of this, and he was also aware that the Toulon fleet were rebuilding from the Toulon campaign much faster than you might have supposed, given that Corsica was the source of their naval stores, and they didn't have access to that. Yes, it's always puzzling, and of course this is going to run and run throughout um, the uh, uh, next few years, you know, thinking thinking ahead to 96. But um, the, the I kind of struggle to connect the what's going along on on, on the Riviera and in in the land war with with the naval war. But I think what you're describing is that they're very much interconnected, and one is able to influence the other. Yes, they should always be seen as interconnected, um, but but just because they are, you, the the right, yeah, yeah. is that it, it its purpose is to influence what happens on land. And equally, as Napoleon demonstrates during his Italian campaign, the land land powers can influence what happens at sea. So uh, other than a mid-oceanic battle, most of what goes on is along the coasts. So there is progress being made. You've got Bastia falling and then Calvi falls in August. But in between those two things, um, Nelson gets wounded. And, and that's that's quite a significant wound for him that, that will stay with him for the rest of his life. Uh, yes. I mean, he, he basically gets hit by a shower of debris um, from some um, ballistics uh, when, they're fire- when the French are firing on a British battery. Um, and it affects his eyesight. Um, He shrugs it off and carries on fighting, but his pupils very enlarged and eventually it becomes an issue in terms of his depth perception and peripheral vision, which are quite critical for a sea officer um, when examining a field of, of what he's trying to do. And he's often trying to see things in the distance and work out, uh, spatial you know he needs his spatial awareness it would be reasonable to assume that he surrounded himself with people who could see very well yeah yeah uh, i suppose so um and and follow his judgment accordingly and and so by the end of this um this three month period so by the end of september how um was this were, were these efforts to take corsica going uh they were they well they basically Brit- the britain had taken uh, Corsica once Calvi surrendered. Um, ah, so the, the white flag r- r- rises on Calvi and we can say that's it basically um, and, and this is now secured for the British. Yes, uh, they in- Britain quickly installs uh, Gilbert Elliot as a viceroy. They make Paoli um, president um, and in fact General Stuart who commanded the assault on Calvi becomes a, an advisor they all fall out eventually, but it does give Britain this Corsican territory and this base from which to operate. And it enables the British to clear Corsican bays of French privateers. It enables them to protect trade better. And from where they can conduct um, their um, diplomacy with neutrals and their blockades. So it gives Britain exactly what they needed. Unfortunately, it just took longer than um, it they might have hoped. And the real cost to Britain is the, was the loss of 
the strategic leadership of Hood at the end of the campaign, um, that was a real blow, I think, for the mid for the med fleet going forward. Um, there simply weren't many people who could command such a complex theatre and and ha- could integrate the political and strategic vision. Well, how did Hood's exit come about? Uh, so he returned. He was recalled to. Uh, the Admiralty, he he returned, um, he uh, spoke with the Admiralty and basically he wanted reinforcements. He wanted to uh, boost the Mediterranean fleet and they were under-resourced for what they were trying to do. Um, there was a lot of area in which to exercise command and protect trade and blockade and they simply didn't have the resources that they needed. Um, at this time, Spain was becoming less of an ally and verging, moving towards their position of neutrality. So Britain was increasingly doing this alone and Hood could see that that was coming, uh, that that would be coming. He also recognised that this was a completely different type of war and what the French could do on land was going to influence what he could do at sea if he didn't have more resources and couldn't connect more easily with the allies on land, the Austrians and the Italians and stiffen their resolve. So he petitioned for more resources and the Admiralty gave him very little. So he wrote a public letter basically saying, criticising the Admiralty and uh, and pointing out that it would be impossible to do his job well. And they didn't, they didn't really take very kindly to that. Yeah, I bet. I expect Henry Dundas was behind the final sacking, although spent... Earl Spencer, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty, told the king it was a matter of subordination. Um, (laughs) It's a pretty pretty cheeky thing to do. Exactly, and he was quite shocked. Um, The Mediterranean fleet was shocked, well, less shocked, I think. But I think there was also the influence of General Dundas, who hadn't really accepted Hood's role or his subordination, perhaps, or, or even cooperate. He saw cooperating with the Navy as a co- strategic compromise. So I, I suspect there was a lot of influ- political influences going on that Hood may have been less aware of because he hadn't been there. Rachel Blackman there, another busy quarter for the guillotine. The Allies going backwards quite literally in the Low Countries and a tussle between naval and land forces in the Mediterranean. So a lot to pick over for Charles and Alex. And following up from Rachel there, let's pick over the military position first of all. And I just wondered whether we might start by talking about Britain rather than France or any other country for a change. Because is it me or... Britain... You know, in these early episodes of the podcast, when Pitt was wondering about going to war, you were saying that Britain's strategic priority was, well, clearly the Scheldt was a big part of it. Well, that's gone. They've lost They've lost that, uh, or control of it. That's gone to France. And now, with, this, with the French heading eastwards uh, along the Riviera, there's this threat to the control of the Mediterranean too. So, so how bad is the situation looking for Britain, would we say, at this stage? Um, certainly it's quite problematic. Um, Britain cannot fight France without the aid of at least one and preferably two of the Eastern powers. Well, um, Prussia and Russia are, are not being any help whatsoever. And, and the Austrians have been beaten are in, are in, and are in full retreat. Well, what can the British always do when, when, when things are going badly um, on the European landmass? They can always turn to naval operations, whether it's attacking in Saint-Domingue or, or, or yes, whether it's, it's occupying Corsica. The problem is British sea power is a double-edged sword. I mean, I go back to what I was saying about how Britain needed allies. Britain could not fight the war on her own she could keep it going but she couldn't possibly win the problem is that every time she flexes her muscles at sea every time she does something like invade Saint-Domingue or invade Corsica 
everybody turns around and says, ah, look, yes, just just what we always said, the British are, are, are out to feather their own nests. The British are out to build their own empire. The British are, you know, pretend to be on our side, but they're doing everybody else down, including us. Um, so consequently, although Britain can engage in maritime activity, that doesn't particularly help her. It, it actually deepens her diplomatic difficulties and, and relations with Naples, for example, had already been quite strained because of Toulon. Well, invading Corsica doesn't help in the slightest. Why don't the Neapolitans like that strengthened British presence? Because th- there's no existential threat there. Surely it's useful for the Neapolitans to, to have um, that British uh, presence in the Western Mediterranean. I think that's um, spoken as a, <laughs> spoken from a British perspective, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Ah, no, surely not. Surely I haven't allowed. Um, uh, <laughs> because the, the very notion uh, that the British are posing, this notion of security for the future, is in many respects undermined by the establishment of the Anglo-Corsican kingdom. Because as Charles pointed out, here's the problem here. Uh, Corsica belonged to France. Whether Corsicans liked it or not, international, as far as international law was concerned, it was part of the French kingdom. And what Britain is doing here is engaging in what we now call nation building. And nation building violates the inter- territorial integrity of France, but it violates the fundamental law uh, principle of international law. So here, British might try to convince the other powers that the French Revolution represents a greater threat than the British expansion into the Mediterranean. But the very act of creating Corsican Kingdom subverts this claim. Rather than protecting the international order from this revolutionary threat, the British are now becoming a part of a threat to it. Oh, it's just a little it's just a little bit of regime change. That can't <laughs> anybody, can it? Okay, fair enough, fair enough. There's also questions of prestige because, um, you know, Naples regarded itself as the paramount power in the, the, the if you want, the central Mediterranean. I mean, basically the everywhere from Sardinia on the, on the one side to the, the coast of Greece on the other. Um, and the idea of Britain muscling in was, was simply not... Well, not welcome at the very, very least. You know, the events in Corsica underscore British difficulty finding a base of operations in the Western Mediterranean, right? After the evacuation of Toulon, British Navy needs a base of operation. And I mean, they could have, let's say, gone to Naples, right? And said, hey, can we use one of your ports? But we know that Neapolitans were not willing to offer any sort of stable base to the British uh, for that very kind of uh, suspicion that they have of the future British intentions. And same applies to Tuscany. Uh, Hood was well aware that Tuscany and Britain were only barely cordial, and that Tuscany was not willing to accept any British warships entering its ports. Uh, and, and even though Livorno would have, could have offered great place for the uh, as a base of operations, they were not offering it to the British. And I think that's an important element to this story. Uh, the, the, again, the problem of coalition fighting, that coalition members have their own issues, and those issues oftentimes are driving the coalition partners away from each other. That's a, such a good point. And, and clearly, whichever perspective you're looking at, it's, it's problematic. Uh, let's turn to the Austrians then, and this question of whether they could have done anything differently and Alex I know you think that um, that Francis is someone who could have done things a little differently you know we talk about the role of individuals in history and I think this is a, one of those moments where we can see that the Austrians don't really have a good military leadership in place we've talked repeatedly about Austrian commanders not performing um, well in in Austrian Netherlands But what is interesting at this moment is that um, in April, um, Austrian Emperor uh, Francis and uh, Tugut traveled to Austrian Netherlands and they actually had tried to inspire the Austrian soldiers, they tried to rally the Belgian citizenry and all that. Uh, And then we see those military defeats that we've talked about, right? And especially the the defeat at Turcoin. 
And the loss of Turcoin, uh, I think, set the tone of this defeatism. And one of the ways we see that is because Emperor decides at this remarkable moment to return home to be with his wife, who was in the last stages of pregnancy. That's so interesting, that, because Francis, he was basically a nice guy, wasn't he? He was appalled by the body piles of bodies he saw earlier in this year. He, he just wanted to go home and be with his, his wife. Which, on a human level, is commendable, I understand. Yeah, but when you're head of, a, head of a state, head of an empire, uh, trying to contain an exp- <laughs> a, a, a military rival... Um, that's at the top of your list, probably, of things to do. Tugut is a very important person in, in the story of Austrian warfare because he uh, he's involved uh, in so many things. And here in August of 1794, Tugut is a crucial figure who opposes uh, seeking peace with France. And his argument is uh, uh, quite kind of reasonable. You know, he says that we can seek peace in the midst of setbacks, right, when we are suffering military setbacks. And instead, he argues that uh, Austria really needs to uh, follow three courses of action. And the first one that he identifies in this long letter that he's written to Francis in, on August 16 is quite note, you know, is, is quite revealing itself that, you know, the first one is we need more money. A second recommendation that he gives to the uh, Austrian emperor is to find better commanders. And especially he talks about replacing Kahlberg, whom he describes as a whining, pathetic old man. And third uh, recommendation that Tugut gives is to improve relations among the allies. That there has to be a better coordination with British, better relations with Prussians. That there has to be a, a, a way that the coalition can coalesce. To contain French threat, and this notion or this this theme of better relations between the Allies, better cooperation and coordination, is something we will see time and again throughout this podcast until probably eighteen thirteen, when coalition really will get its act together. Given all of the the chop- literally chopping and changing in France, if you if you'll forgive the expression, um, that that is very very difficult. To come to any sort of deal with the French that will last, because they can, they can, they can do a deal with with one government, um, and then there might be, you know, yet another revolution in Paris, and somebody else is going to be in power. So they felt that they were dealing with a, a tremendously unstable situation. Well, let's finish how we started um, this episode with French politics, with Thermidor. And and we said we'd look at the Thermidorian reaction and this group of individuals who are emerging from. What feels like this? It feels like this is the episode in which all of these tensions within the revolution have have been resolved. That that there's been a gradual contraction of who could be trusted, and that number has slowly gone down until it almost reached zero, uh, and and then it all um, fixes itself. But was it actually like that? I mean, what what were the prospects for something maybe just a little less crisis ridden in the months ahead? Robespierre, yes, he was. You know, he was. He was a man who went to great lengths to def- to to defend the revolution, to 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 ensure its survival. But actually, one thing which he, he had consistently been opposed to was foreign expansion. You know, he, one of the reasons why people got guillotined was if they got too enthusiastic about uh, annexing um, chunks of fresh territory. And so, when when Robespierre falls, one of the brakes is taken off. Now, the other thing which nobody's mentioned yet um, are all the French generals. War has given them everything that they've got, really. And so consequently, they form a powerful, if you like, forward constituency, um, which is going to be difficult to ignore. And then and, and the other thing, of course, is um, Alex's point about um, about feeding the armies. Yeah, okay. You can you can give France an army of seven hundred and fifty thousand men, wonderful. Um, but that's seven hundred and fifty thousand men who need to be fed, and France is in a desperate economic situation. What's the only way you can feed them? Well, by by sending them abroad. But then you run into another difficulty. I mean, Robespierre actually said nobody likes armed missionaries. You know, he, 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 he argued consistently that, that exporting the revolution at the point of a bayonet 
was not going to, if you like, export the revolution. So, so the French themselves are, are riding the back of a tiger. Oh, uh, if if you were in summer in seventeen ninety four in in London or Madrid or Vienna, looking uh, from outside in uh, at, at France, I think you don't have any assurance of anything stable. Um, you've seen this story playing out before this regime change in France, uh, come and go. There is no assurance, no nothing that will give you a sense that this new French government will survive uh, for for long. There was no certainty that the the French Revolution was entering any uh, period of stability. Uh, the the future would have been quite quite bleak. Um, the only I think consolation that contemporaries might have drawn was that the the very group who advocated, or at least was the uh, the public face of the radicalism, uh, was um, or seemingly destroyed. I think that's the only sense of uh, of, of a ray of sunshine <laughs> on on this grim uh, horizon. Well, another gloomy situation then, uh, as Charles describes. If only there was something to cheer us all up at the end. Alex, is there anything that you might be able to pull out of the hat here? Well, the only one I think who would be cheerful at this time <laughs> were the uh, Muscadens. Uh, that is a group of young men uh, who appeared in, in, in Paris, especially uh, in the wake of uh, Thermidorian reaction, all uh, uh, dressed in a dandish kind of manner, all fanciful uh, dressed, who became street fighters, um, who confronted uh, the supporters of the previous regime. And oftentimes violently uh, dealt with them with uh, because they carried large wooden clubs, which they fondly called constitutions. So they literally <laughs> beat their opponents with the constitutions. <laughs> <laughs> and and were they basically thugs? I mean, they they, they weren't like um, folk dancers. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. That's right. Uh, we can. Well, I think we can easily refer to them as. Uh, is youthful thugs who, in the in the after a rather um, difficult year, now have a chance to score or settle some scores with their opponents. I mean, yeah, that's it's quite funny that they're uh, that they're calling these clubs the, the constitutions. But I think France in seventeen ninety four in Paris, you know, must have been a the kind of place where you, you're looking over your shoulder every so often. I mean, what would you want to do if you just wanted to pop down to the shops and get a loaf of bread, you, which of course would be very, very expensive. It must have been, must have been very grim being in Paris then. In any case, uh, why don't we leave it there? Uh, I need to go to the shops to get some bread as it happens, but uh, thankfully I don't think the Muscadance dancer around anymore but in my neck of the woods. Thank you to Charles Estelle and Alex Mika Baruzier. Thanks also to Marisa Linton, Gary Wills and Rachel Blackman-Rogers. Thanks to Ben Eckersley for all the music. And at the end of this quarter, there are 7,565 days to go until Waterloo. Um, and in episode 12, we've got another cracker. Among my guests in episode uh, 12 will be Adam Zamoyski, who will describe the bloody ending of the uprising in Poland. The idea of the of the insurrection um, was utterly ridiculous, and had it had absolutely not the slightest chance of success. 